Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm Sally Ganga, and I'll be your host today and next week. Beth Heaton, the regular host, will return on June 9th. Now on to today. We'll be devoting two of our segments to study abroad, its benefits, and how to pay for it. In our second segment, we'll be talking to Danielle Dugan, Public Relations Manager at Student Universe, who, having studied abroad as a student herself, is a great person to talk to about why you should consider spending a summer, a semester, or a year abroad, and how to get the most out of the experience. Then we have Michelle Clifton, former financial aid officer at Babson College and current finance expert with College Coach, who is here to discuss how to pay for study abroad. But first, are you curious about the new coalition application, which just went live this year? Wondering how and why it came about? Want to hear from someone who will give you her honest opinion about it? We will be talking to Marie Bigham former admissions officer at Washington University in St. Louis and a veteran college counselor who is now at Isidore Newman School in New Orleans. But most importantly for our discussion today, she was on the board of the National Association of College Admission Counselors and so has been looking at how the coalition application will be affecting all of us. Welcome, Marie. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming. So let's start with the basics. What is the coalition application? Sure. So the coalition application, the coalition platform, um, is an application system that's been designed by approximately 93 currently colleges, um, and it's a three-step process. The first step is called the locker, and that is a virtual spot for students to store information. The second part is the collaboration platform, and that's a space that's designed for students to be able to share documents and ideas with adults they trust. And then the third part is the application to the colleges themselves. Okay, so this is a pretty different, um, pretty different type of platform. Let's start with who some of the colleges are behind it, and then let's get into um, mm-hmm. sort of why they did it. The, the colleges that are currently members of the coalition, like I said, it's about 93 of them. Um, and they are currently, um, the, the selection criteria is that they are colleges that provide an excellent education and uh, affordability. And I'm going to use that word in, um, in quotation marks. Uh, but in affordability. So some of the colleges that are the biggest brand names in the country are involved, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford. Um, And then you have some other places that are well-known for providing access uh, to students, such as um, SUNY, uh, I'm sorry, University of Buffalo, which is a part of the SUNY system, um, and other large flagship public institutions. Okay. All right. And so what... Why did the colleges involved decide to create this application? What motivated them to do so? So let me start by saying that I I am not a part of the colleges that are involved with the coalition. So what I can share with you about the genesis and the current status of it is really somewhat as an outsider, as a counselor, um, but because of my role on the NACAC board and because I'm just a deeply curious person, um, comes from research and reaching out to the college members. But my understanding is that the genesis of, of 
the coalition started in 2013 when the common application, which is used by 600 plus colleges, including all of those, um, or the founding coalition schools, when the coalition application had, I'm sorry, the, the common application had a significant technological failure. And so my understanding is that the coalition started when a number of the highly selective colleges said, hey, we cannot be bound to one application delivery system. I remember in 2013 the real sense of panic, not just from the students using the application and those of us other counselors, but really from the colleges when they were looking at the potential of not having applications delivered to them, and that was really scary. So my understanding is that in 2013, um, a group of colleges got together to talk about building uh, a secondary system uh, for applications. The interesting thing to me, though, if that is the reason of how it started, is that there were already a number of other application platforms out there already. But this group of colleges, they wanted to have a flexible system that they could design that didn't have a broad membership, and so they decided to build this new application. But that was that started in about 2013. Okay. Yeah, and I think, I think anybody who was involved in college admissions and remembers kind of what a crazy time it was for anybody using the common application. So. Oh, yeah. I remember, <laughs> um, I, I remember sitting and thinking, okay do I actually have to drive things to a college? What, what, what are we going to do here? It really was a scary, scary time. Right, right. Are uh, we going to have to go back to mailing everything in the, exactly. by the post office? So, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, in 2013, the Common App did not have a paper platform anymore, and the application that was online wasn't one that was printable. So by having the tech issues, there, there really was a significant logjam and concerns that colleges weren't going to get applications. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we can get a sense of their motivation, although, as you said, um, mm-hmm. there were other platforms available, like the universal uh, right. co- application, for example. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But okay, so we have this new application, but what are your, I mean, it's, it's really, it's brand new, but what are your mm-hmm. thoughts about it? You know, as someone who's prominent in NACAC, and mm-hmm. who's worked in both undergraduate admissions and college counseling on the high school side, you know, how do you see it impacting the college admissions landscape overall, you know, for good sure. or for bad? So in 2013 and 2014, when the conversation was still fairly um, limited about the coalition application, I, I did express concern, gosh, do we need another application? But I think more, more than that, I expressed an interest in learning about anything that could potentially shake up the application process. Um, and I hoped that this would be something that could potentially shake up the process in a fundamental way. I, I believe in my core that those of us who work in the profession of helping students go to second, post-secondary education, that none of us would look at this admissions process as it is right now and say, hey, that's a great idea. This is exactly how we should do it. So in 2013 and 2014, I was excited, I was cautious, but I was excited about this opportunity to see if the wealthiest and most prominent colleges could come up with something different. I will admit I was deeply disappointed in 2015, in September, a week before our national conference, our NACAC conference in San Diego, there was a big 
burst of energy that the coalition application was being launched, but they changed the name. It went from being the coalition application to suddenly the Coalition for Access, Success, and Affordability, I think it is. And so suddenly this tool that for two years had been discussed as we're developing a new application that colleges can control that is stable it morphed from that into this is a new tool that's going to help poor kids and underserved kids find the colleges that are most likely to fund them. Mm-hmm. When that shift of focus occurred, it was, I think, a surprise to many of us in the profession who pay a lot of attention to this. And that's when I became doubtful, skeptical, and potentially even a little cynical about it. Because I said, gosh, this is really interesting that we're going to have this entire platform, but I, I don't believe in our core that technology is the thing that saves everything. Mm-hmm. Um, when the list of colleges grew, I was, again, skeptical. How are these folks the same? And I also was uh, skeptical because, to me, by putting that name, which is a coalition for access and affordability, it, it sent the message, either intentionally or, or not, that this group of colleges are the best to do that. Um, there are a lot of conversations and questions about how, how do you all define affordable colleges? How do you define these things? And there have been very few answers. So my, my, cons- my excitement of having a platform that could shake up um, and really rethink this process has now turned into a lot of skepticism about an application that doesn't seem to be shaking up anything but has slapped a label of access on it. And yet, I, when I look at the three tools, I just don't personally see how that creates access for our underserved students. Yeah, so that's, it my, seems... that's my philosophical concern. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and very practically, as you said, if, if it's so technology-reliant, and a lot of underserved students don't have reliable access to technology, right. then what are, you know, in practical terms, how is this actually going to help with this? Exactly. You know? And, you know, Sally, you and I, we've been friends for a long time. And one of the ways we've become friends is through our work at College Horizons, which helps Native students, many from the reservations, um, find college homes that are affordable and that are supportive. We know that the students in those communities don't have stable Internet access at home, if at all, that their schools don't have the resources, they don't have the time, and the counselors don't have the time. Um, When many of us in the profession have pushed back on that idea that technology is going to help the the underserved and poor kids, I've been exceptionally frustrated when, when some members of the coalition application have said, yeah, but they all have smartphones. I think we can all agree that applying to college on a smartphone is not ideal. Right. Yeah, I don't think there. it's not really ideal for editing documents, no. for being thoughtful. Um, I, I don't think it's even ideal for creating documents, although I will acknowledge that they can text faster than I can type in some cases. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but, you know, we got, when we think about this idea of the locker, and, you know, we were told students can upload, they can scan and upload documents and they can save them there. I, for a student in a school like mine, and I work at independent schools that, that are fairly wealthy and have students of means, mm-hmm. at schools like mine, having access to a scanner and storing an item is not a big deal. But at the schools where these students in theory attend, 
they don't have technology. They don't have teachers giving them back papers with, uh, you know, significant comments. Like, it just seems as though the idea of what this tool could potentially do makes a ton of sense if you're a student of means who already has many people advocating for you. It makes sense then, but when you're talking about the populations that that coalition claims to be reaching out to, I don't see that nearly, I don't, I don't see that playing out. Yeah, I, th- I was sort of thinking, especially with this idea that it's going to start in ninth grade. I mean, I think right. you have to go, you have to belong to a community that talks about college all the time to be right. thinking about college in ninth grade. I mean, that's Absolutely. pretty early. So it seems well, to give an advantage to the, the kids who are already right. advantaged, to me. I, I would agree with you completely. Um, and it's so interesting because in our, in our country, you know, every conversation has two sides, and it's the haves and the have-nots. Um, at college admissions is the exact same way. At schools like mine, we talk about not talking to kids in ninth grade about college because it adds too much to the pressure. In schools of communities where there's no college-going culture, we talk about building that college-going culture early, and ninth grade is almost too late. So Mm -hmm. it's like there are these two different worlds. Um, But the students, in my mind, who are most likely to use this new tool, if they do at all, are the kids coming from my communities. And we've already seen in the profession a cottage industry, really, of, of, of expensive consultants reaching out to wealthy zip codes saying, my job is to help you build that locker. Mm -hmm. I'm not seeing folks advertise that in the communities that, again, in theory, this is intended to help. Right, right. Do you think, I mean, is the coalition doing anything to deliver on the promise to be more inclusive? Maybe, you know, I don't know, supplying some of the counselors that that can do some of that reach out in or outreach in the lower-income, lower-resourced communities, or is anything like that happening? Mm-hmm. You- well, you know, to the coalition's credit, a week ago in D.C., there was a convening of a group of CBOs, of community-based organizations, that was hosted by the Jack Kent Cook Foundation and sponsored by the coalition, and a group of people who do the work on the ground got together to talk about this, to give feedback, and so on. So to their credit, yes, they've done that, I will say, as a high school counselor, I keep waiting for information. You know, you mentioned this is launching. So, in theory, this application will launch in July. Originally, they were saying July 1st, and now it's just kind of a soft July. But I'll tell you, as a school counselor, I'm waiting for information. The only information that I'm receiving at all about this application tool in the least bit is coming from other college counselors as we're trying to piece together information. There has been a real dearth of information from the colleges who are part of the coalition or from the new executive director of the coalition itself. So Mm -hmm. the information that I'm getting as a high school counselor and as an ACAC board member is second, third, fourth hand. Mm -hmm. There is a small group of people who just heard some information, but even they, some friends of mine attended that meeting, even they said, gosh, there's no real hard information yet. Nothing's Mm -hmm. been rolled out. And so I think there's a little bit of irony that this whole thing was started because of the technological issues that faced the the common application in 2013. But as I step back and look at how this has been rolled out and developed, it's almost like the coalition took that timeline of the common app and they're following it exactly. 
Right. <laughs> right. You know, my husband owns a tech company and we talk a lot about technology and I asked him the appropriate timeline for a rollout of something like this. And as I listen to him talk about it, it almost feels like the coalition is like a year and a half to two years behind schedule of how to right. test and how to roll something out. In theory, this thing is going live in four weeks. Right. No one knows what it looks like at all. At yeah. all. Yeah, I have to say, I mean, because of that, I'm not recommending it to students, but there are a few colleges that I believe are using it exclusively. I think University yeah. of Washington is one of them, for yeah. example. University of Washington, University of Maryland, and University of Florida are the right. three that have announced that they will be using this product exclusively. Now, the one thing that makes me feel less terrified about that is that the coalition application is a product that's being developed by a company called CollegeNet, a company that has already developed applications. Maryland, Florida, and Washington, my, I understand, are already colleges that use CollegeNet product. Oh. So to me, it sounds like, okay, they're just going to keep on keeping on. They're just going to do what they have always done. Um, but to your point about that, to me what's been kind of fascinating, and it blew up a little bit today on our professional message, you know, uh, exchange, professional exchange, is that uh, it, right now it seems like about a third of the 90-plus colleges that have signed on for this are not going to use the coalition application in 2016-17. My understanding as well is that more and more are switching to, hey, we're not going to use it because of fear of lack of testing, but a mm -hmm. deep frustration I've had is, A, I've had to get that information through the grapevine, and B, the coalition is not releasing at all the names of the colleges who are not using it next year. And so, again, this black hole of information mm -hmm. is scary well, to me. Yeah, well, and it is pretty ironic because I think part of access is transparency, yeah, and there's absolutely. not a lot of transparency going mm -hmm. on here. There's not a lot of transparency, and you know, if you follow our again our our professional exchange or the various Facebook groups or any of the ways people are communicating about this, so much of this is speculation amongst high school counselors and independent counselors because it, the coalition colleges individually and collectively aren't sharing information, mm -hmm. and perhaps right. it's that it's not developed. Perhaps it's that there. I, I don't know. I don't. I, all I can do is speculate because I don't have information about it. But we are in a profession where we plan ahead a while, you know, and we're our profession is one that admittedly is slow to change. So to be told that these ninety-three colleges are going to launch this amazing thing, and we're going to do it in July, and we're not going to show you anything before then, I think has made many of us very, very nervous. And um, I, I, I can tell you personally as a counselor, I will tell my students, I don't know enough about this, and you don't know enough about this to use this product, so we're going to use the common application where available. And if students want to apply to those three publics that are going to use this exclusively, well, we're going to muddle through it together, but for the most part, I don't see my students using this next year. Mm -hmm. And frankly, because... They are not students of need. I don't really want to encourage them to use it because if, if that really is their intended audience, that's, that's not my student group. Right. So, yeah, I'm, nerv I'm nervous about it, but I think my tactic is just to tell students and families, this isn't something ready for us to use yet, so let's not. 
Yeah. So actually, so we have to go. Um, um, I was so fascinated that I lost track of time. But Marie, Hi. thank you so much for coming today. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. And thanks to your listeners so much. Okay. And um, so everyone, we're going to take a, a short break. But when we get back, we'll be talking to Daniel Dugan of Student Universe about study abroad. Thanks so much. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Beth Green and James Maynard, Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. As I mentioned before our break, for this segment, we'll be talking with Danielle Dugan from Student Universe about studying abroad. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me on today. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, so, Danielle, let's start with how did you get interested in uh, in the work you do, um, assisting students do study abroad, uh, go for a study abroad program? Well, I, I studied abroad myself back in college, um, went over to Denmark, which is sort of a non-traditional study abroad location, um, and went over to the Copenhagen Business School and had such a wonderful experience um, being being abroad. And so I spent the first uh, chapter of my career doing um, public relations for high-tech companies. And I kind of had this moment where I realized that, you know, I loved the work I did and I love communication work, but I really wanted to focus it on an area that I feel passionate about. So um, I've been with Student Universe for about a year and a half and uh, learning a lot more about the travel space and working alongside students who have... Um, an interest in in traveling internationally. And, you know, as a company, we're really, um, our focus is to help students have international experiences. Okay. All right. Great. Well, so just building on that, what kinds of students might want to consider studying abroad? Like who, if you're talking to a student, who do you really say, oh, you should absolutely think about studying abroad? Sure. Well, there are definitely certain um, certain students, you know, whether you're studying language or maybe you're studying history, um, where it will sort of seem like a no-brainer to study abroad, either in a short-term program or in a full semester or a full year-long program. Um, but I, I really do think that the skills that you acquire when you study abroad are, are skills that really anyone um, anyone should study abroad and that everyone can benefit from having the skill set, you know, going into an uncertain area where maybe you don't speak the language um, and, and putting yourself out there into an unfamiliar situation. Um, it's only going to help you later in life when you face challenges or unfamiliar situations in the workplace. Um, we actually did a survey pretty recently with a company called Intern Queen, and they help students uh, find internships. And we spoke to all the employers that are hiring interns from their site. And more than half of the employers that we surveyed said that international experiences, whether it's studying abroad or working abroad, actually make a candidate a lot more attractive to them. So I think that it has um, both personal and professional benefits, um, beyond, even beyond the experience that you have while you're there. Um, we also spoke to the students that we know that have gone abroad and used Student Universe, and, and 85% of them said that it's one of the things they talk about when they go on interviews. All right, great. So there's some pretty concrete um, career benefits. Um, any other career benefits? Or um, if not, we can talk about the academic benefits as well. You know, I definitely think there's career benefits. I think that a lot of people now are, are having, you know, an internship or multiple internships. And to be able to talk about doing something um, in a completely foreign land, I think it's just something that's really intriguing to employers. Um, and even beyond employers, when you think about someone's personal um, benefits or outcomes from studying abroad, um, in the students that we know that have studied abroad, that we've spoken to and surveyed, um, 97% of them said it gave them more self-confidence. Um, 86% said, you know, I did the study abroad experience, and I would do the exact same thing if I was given the chance again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually, um, I actually studied abroad Um I did YFU as a gap year between high school and college, and I certainly never regretted it. And and when you talk about confidence, I mean, it just my confidence went through the roof uh, because of that experience. I was much more uh, confident than sort of a typical, I think, student at my stage. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. So so kind of piggybacking piggybacking on that. What are some of the other personal benefits? I mean, I think you know, confidence is obviously a big one. It strikes me that. Um, you know, there's always going to be potential benefits of, you know, I learned how to speak another language, but that's not necessary. Sure. You went, 
I mean, you know, you can go to countries where you speak English and still learn, still get a lot out of it. So what are some other benefits? I just want to really explore this. Yeah, so I think that really before you're deciding where to study abroad or, or that you even may want to study abroad, um, I think you really have to think about, you know, what you want to get out of it. Um, do you want to go to a country um, where English is the predominant language? And we know, after looking at our data on where are students actually going abroad, um, we know that since 2007, London has been the top location that students are traveling to for study abroad. And I think for a lot of students, it's sort of a comfort, you know, a comfort of being, you know, you're able to go into Europe, but you're still in an English-speaking country, and there's sort of a comfort zone associated with that. So I think that's something to consider. You know, do you want to go to another English-speaking country, or do you want to go somewhere that's going to feel a little bit more foreign? Um, similarly, do you want to go somewhere that a lot of students from your college are going? I know for me, um, I went to a business school undergrad, and we sent the highest concentration of students to Australia. So if you had chosen to go to our program at RMIT in Australia, you might have gone with 30 or 40 other students from your undergraduate program. If you chose Denmark, like I did, which is not nearly as popular of a program, um, you know, you might have gone with six or seven people from your college. Some of them you may not have ever known before, which was the case for me. Um, so again, I think you're going to get more benefits out of going somewhere where you don't know a lot of people that are going, and you kind of have to get there and make friends and kind of figure things out as you go. Um, it's not going to be comfortable. You're using different currency. You're dealing with people speaking different languages. Um, you're dealing with different public transportation systems. Um, but for me, it was my first time in Europe, and I, I was able to go to 10 countries while I was abroad and really explore not only the culture of Denmark, um, and, and it's certainly very different from, from what I had been exposed to in, in school in the U.S., um, but experiencing a lot of places while you're there and traveling around is one of the best benefits you can have because you're not only making friends and experiencing the educational benefits of another institution, but you're opening yourself up to just experiencing so many more places that you may never have gone if you weren't already living in another part of the world. Mm-hmm. Well, and I just want to kind of going back to employers really liking international experience. I mm-hmm. have to imagine that someone who has, as you said, been in situations where they were uncomfortable and gotten through them and really enjoyed them, that that's got to be yep. that kind of adaptability is a really strong quality to have. Absolutely. And, and for me, just noticing a lot of differences, like if you're on public transportation in the Boston area, for example, a lot of people are talking and very friendly and, um, you know, on public transportation in Denmark, I was very surprised that, you know, everyone, it's, it's much more of a society where everyone keeps to themselves. There's not a lot of talking. It's not very loud in restaurants or common areas and kind of adapting your behaviors to fit in with your surroundings um, and understanding cultural differences. And I think that you know, in, at more and more as people are working, you know, with, you know, offices internationally or working cross-culturally with colleagues in the U.S. and abroad, um, being able to be sensitive and adapting to other cultures is very important. And I think having that skill set um, is one that I think, you know, would transfer very well both from, from you know, experiences abroad to a professional working environment. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's let's talk now about how uh, should a student prepare to study abroad. In other words, sure. what are some of what are some of the barriers to studying abroad, and how do you effectively plan for those barriers, and and so that you can work around them? Sure. Well, I think it's very important um, if a student knows going into college that they are going to want to study abroad. It's going to be an important part of their of their college experience, and some students don't know that at that point. Um, but if you do know that at that point. I think when you're looking at colleges, it's important to consider 
what their programs are like. Do they have a lot of different programs? Do they only have a few? Is this a school that really pushes study abroad as a concept? And they're going to really help you make it a possibility? Or they don't. Um, I think some things to think about from my own experience. Um, a lot of schools have GPA requirements to study abroad. It will be important to understand what those are. If you really want to study abroad, do you think you're going to be able to attain the GPA required to do so at the different colleges you're evaluating. Um, some schools will require you to go abroad for a full year. Some schools you can go abroad for a semester or a year. Um, that's another thing to think about. Um, if, at the college that I attended, if you were part of the honors program, you had to go abroad in your sophomore year. That was a requirement. So maybe, that, maybe you feel that that's too soon in your college experience, and maybe you want to go abroad junior year, which tends to be a little bit more traditional. Um, I think for some students, if you're, if you're in certain majors, like if you're, you know, pre-med or if you're an athlete or if you have different sort of restrictions that might make it more difficult for you to study abroad, I know for myself, I was a marketing major and I was going to another business school abroad. So I thought it was going to be really easy to take these courses and to have them transfer back into my um, curriculum requirements at my primary institution. What I found out was that that was not going to be as easy as I had thought. Um, and that a lot of the courses offered at the Copenhagen Business School actually were not accepted by my institution. So what I did to plan ahead for that was I saved a lot of my elective courses where there's a little bit more flexibility, and I was able to transfer those, the courses from the school in as elective requirements. So you want to make sure that um, you're not going to cause yourself to have to, you know, to ex exceed the four years in college by going abroad. I think that's what scares some people is if the classes don't transfer back, I might not be able to graduate in four years. But I think with the proper planning, um, it can be possible for just about anyone. Mm -hmm. I agree. Well, the other thing too, I mean, I, I worked at University of Chicago for a while and they um, maybe to be more flexible, they also had a lot of summer programs or, you know, a semester, you only have to save up, a, you know, a smaller number of credits. So it, it sure. seems like if with all the different programs out there, probably everybody can do it. And those summer programs are very popular. Um, I know part of our business is group travel where we're sending groups of students with a professor um, to, to travel abroad. And, you know, it could be a professor taking a group abroad for a language course or even, um, a philanthropic experience, and then they get a couple of credits at their school. So um, generally those would happen either on an, what they call an alternative spring break trip or over the summer, or in some cases even over the holiday break in December. So I think that, you know, if you, if you identify that it's going to be too difficult for you either financially or academically to go abroad for an extended period of time, um, these shorter programs are definitely something to look into. Yeah. I would say, though, I mean, when I talk to people about study abroad, I always recommend going abroad for as long as you can, like yes. for a full year. I personally think sure. that the longer you're there, the greater your benefits. What is your what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I completely agree. Um, one of my requirements when I was abroad was to take Danish language course. And so over the six months that I was there, I was learning Danish and just um, you know, being able to speak to the people over there and sort of build up the language skills over a period of time, um, you know, is something that, you know, I was able to achieve over a six-month period. But if I had only been there for a few weeks, I don't think that that would have been at all possible. Um, and, you know, being there for an extended length of time, you are able to really kind of immerse yourself more in the culture and form um, lasting relationships with other people that you meet there. Um, just going back to the survey that we did um, of our students that studied abroad, that used Student Universe, 
um, 96% of them cited that they stayed in contact with at least someone that they met while they were abroad. So I think your, um, your ability to form more meaningful relationships as well as skills that are going to be transferable into the workplace, um, if language is important to you or uh, maybe, again, going back, maybe you're a history major and you want to really learn a lot about the architecture of a specific country, um, I think those things are more possible the longer that you're there. And I know a lot of students even um, cite even greater experiences, um, like yourself doing a whole year program, whereas I only did six months. Mm-hmm. And being there for six months, I was <laughs> quite sad to come home. So I would have um, I would have loved the opportunity to have been there even longer than I was. Yeah. Well, and I have to say, I think it took me about six months to start dreaming in French, for example. So right. that was kind of a nice, you know, that was the moment. I remember some at some point in December or probably maybe January where it was like a, a, a switch had flipped and uh, suddenly it was actually easier to speak French than English, which was pretty remarkable. Right. Yeah. And, and so, I know that a lot of people I talk to, it's their biggest regret from college that they didn't study abroad. Um, mm-hmm. I have probably about half my friends did and half didn't. And, and the ones that didn't, they said, you know, once you get into the corporate world and you have, you know, two or three weeks vacation per year, having these types of experiences traveling for a long period of time become less and less possible generally. So um, they really regret not taking that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So we just have a couple minutes left, really just one minute, but can you just quickly give some advice about things a prospective student who's looking at colleges might want to do to make sure she's picked a college that will support her in study abroad? Absolutely. I mean, when you're going to colleges and you're evaluating them, generally you go on a campus tour and and you see all the different parts of the campus. Um, I would argue that you should also stop by the study abroad office, Um, maybe even contact them in advance of your visit. Um, If you know that this particular college is going to be one of your top choices and really get granular with them, you know, where do you send students? How long do you have to go? What are the requirements to go? Um, If I'm majoring in XYZ, what are the requirements to go? And really evaluate that as part of um, your criteria when you're looking at different schools. Um, I I think that they'd be very happy to see students that are um, prospective students coming in and really investing and getting to know more about the programs that they offer. Okay. All right. Great. Well, I think that's wonderful advice to, um, to leave with. So, Michelle, thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. Have a nice rest of the oh, day. I'm sorry. I meant Danielle. I apologize. Thank you, no Danielle. No worries. No okay. worries. Thank you for having me on. Okay, great. All right. So, everyone, we're going um, to take a short break. But when we get back, Michelle Clifton will be talking about how to pay for these great study abroad programs. So, I was just talking to Danielle, and ne- next I will be talking to Michelle. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. 
Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. In this segment, Michelle Clifton will be answering listener questions about financing study abroad. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Sally. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. So let's uh, let's just start with kind of the basics here. How are, uh, let's assume someone is, um, yeah, is studying abroad in college. So how are study abroad programs built? Oh, sure. So that's actually a great place to start since I found this to be one of the more confusing pieces for families. You'd think that there would be one answer, but of course there isn't. It actually depends. So I guess first I'll go over the three common ways that study abroad programs are set up, and then I'll go over how they're usually billed based on that. Mm-hmm. So there could be an exchange where you go to one school and that school sends a student to your school, or the study abroad program could be sponsored by your college or co-sponsored along with a study abroad organization such as like CIEE or IES or AIFS, among many others. Um, And then there's actually some colleges who co-sponsor programs as well. Um, Some that I've seen that do that are Syracuse University and Arcadia University. Or the student could actually completely find a program on their own, whether it be directly with the host school or through a study abroad organization. So those are the three ways. And then in most cases... When the program is sponsored, co-sponsored, or an exchange, then the tuition, or the students actually build their home school's tuition, but the housing is usually billed by the host school or the study abroad organization, or that so the student actually could uh, be have to find how, uh, off-campus housing on their own. And then food and travel costs, they're usually not billed at all, that's typically on the, stu- on the student's own to arrange and pay for those. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll find programs that are fully sponsored and created by your home school. And in that case, it, it is kind of rare, but the- they'll end up billing for tuition and housing and maybe even food and travel. Um, but again, that's more rare. Mm-hmm. And then in the circumstance where the student arranges for the program on their own, that's different. And they're typically billed the tuition and the housing together by the host school or the study abroad organization. Mm. 
So there's definitely many variables. It is confusing. So when a student's considering a study abroad program, they should definitely check with the study abroad office, not only to find out the estimated cost, but also find out what's going to be billed by who and when. Right, right. It does sound pretty complex, <laughs> without yeah, a doubt. sorry. Yeah, that's all right. So what are some payment options? What are some options of how you would pay for all this? Sure, definitely. So if, you know, if your family makes payments out of pocket for college, then as I described above before, you'll most likely need to make two separate payments. So one payment to the college for tuition and one to the host school or that study abroad organization for housing. Um, most of those study abroad organizations actually do allow credit card payments. And one plus to working with them is that they actually bill in U.S. dollars, where if you have to make payments directly to the host school for housing, they're actually going to bill in their own currency. So it can get a lot more confusing. And you may have to send funds by an international wire transfer, or they might also accept credit card payments. Mm. So that's paying out of pocket. If, you, um, if your family pays by a monthly payment plan through your college, then you can probably still do that, but not for the cost that the school's not charging. So if you're only being charged for tuition by your home school, then your payment plan can only be for that and not for the, the room and board like it normally is. And then if you're um, fortunate enough to have a 529 plan, you actually can take a withdrawal for study abroad um, for tuition, required fees, books, room and board. And for room and board, you do have to be enrolled at least half time. And the maximum amount you can withdraw is based on the lesser amount of the school-determined costs by your home school or the amount you actually pay. So that's a little bit confusing there, but basically the lesser amount of housing okay. and board. And, but keep in mind, you can't take a withdrawal for any currency exchange fees or travel costs such as airfare or train fare. Um, so the... 529 plan is limited just as it would be if you were using it in the U.S. Okay, wait. So I just want to clarify. So the 529, even if your school is abroad, you can't, you cannot withdraw from the 529 for the airfare or anything like that. Exactly. Yep. Travel's never, never an approved expense. Okay. All right. All right. So that's good to know. Um, so can students, like, let's say, you know, like most of us, the family doesn't have enough money to pay cash um, or doesn't have a 529, can students or parents borrow educational loans for studying abroad? Yeah, yeah, they definitely can. So students or their parents can borrow loans, but they have to do so through their home institution. So if they happen to be borrowing for all of the costs um, and their housing is billed separately, and, you know, the food and travel costs are not billed at all, then they would have to touch base with the financial aid office to confirm when those funds will be available. Because what will happen is they'll, their loan will get credited to their student account back at their home school, but if it's over the amount of their tuition that is the only thing billed, then they'll have a credit. So they'll have to arrange to have those funds um, sent to them before they leave, hopefully. So, like, when I was at Babson, we'd actually arrange to to pay the housing bill on their behalf when they had enough funds, either coming from financial aid or student loans. And um, then the rest of the funds, we'd refund them uh, about a month before the term began so that they'd have the money in hand before they left. Um, But I'm guessing not all colleges allow for refunds this early, so definitely check in advance so you can plan accordingly on when you'll get that money. 
Okay. All right. Great. Are there any financial aid options um, beyond loans, for example? Sure, sure. Most cases, yeah. So especially if you're someone who's already receiving grant or scholarship funds from your college, um, you oftentimes you can receive similar or the same financial aid. But when you're in that planning stages of you know just thinking about studying abroad, definitely make an appointment with your financial aid counselor, and then ask them a few questions. You know, find out if their typical funding will be available or if it's going to change, um, and if it's going to change by how much. I used to give students an estimate of that all the time to help them really plan to see if they'd have funding, not only for tuition, but for housing, food, and travel. You know, that way they'd have that information when they go back to their parents and try to convince them that studying abroad is a good idea. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay. Um, as far as, like, summer study abroad programs, usually less financial aid is available for the summer, so keep that in mind, but certainly check with the, your counselor. And then um, ask if they have any additional grants or scholarships just for students studying abroad. They may. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are, there are ways to get funding from outside sources. So if you're, if you're working with one of those study abroad organizations, they actually have a lot of scholarships to help with the housing bill. Um, it is mostly need-based. So they'll have a form that your financial aid counselor can, can complete. And then if you're um, awarded a grant, it'll reduce the amount that you have to pay for housing, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I actually, I had a friend when I was in Belgium during my, um, my gap year who, uh-huh. um, she was, she was quite low income and she managed to put together, um, the payment through outside scholarships from clubs like the local Rotary Club where oh, she lived. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she didn't wait to see if there was a scholarship there. She approached them and, you know, kind of developed a proposal and did all those things, but, I thought, you know, if you've got a lot of pluck and determination, maybe some of these things would be a, a possibility. I never forgot yeah, about definitely. that. Oh, yeah, that's great I, to hear. Yeah. I mean, again, she was quite low income. I don't know if that would be accessible to someone who was middle income, but, you know, she did sure. it. So that's great. Um, yeah, I definitely remember my, my high need students that applied for scholarships. A lot of them did receive them, which was awesome. So mm-hmm. they were able to get funding from elsewhere, not just from our school. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are some specific outside scholarships that are um, specific to study abroad. So one that I know about is the Gilman Scholarship Program, and that's for high-need students that are eligible for the federal Pell Grant, and they can apply at iie.org. There's also the Fund for Education Abroad which has um, a few different scholarships each year, and they can apply at fundforeducationabroad.com. Mm-hmm. Then there's a search engine I found that has miscellaneous scholarships, and that's studyabroadfunding.org. Mm-hmm. And then uh, finally, uh, sometimes the financial aid office or study abroad office might have their own list of outside scholarships that they've come across. So definitely check in with them, and um, some might even be country or program-specific. So if they pertain to your program, definitely apply. Well, and I've been hearing about things like, I think in Germany, you can study for free, the tuition at oh, really? least. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. If, you know, they're, they're offering the same cost to international students that they're offering to 
their, you know, in-country students. So, and oh, that, wow. you know, th- yeah, so that's a pretty cool option too. So I think people who want to do this should be determined and look for different ways to do it. You know, you exactly. might not be able to go to London, maybe that's too expensive, but you know what, Berlin <laughs> is pretty cool too. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah. All right. So is studying abroad for a full semester more expensive than a semester on campus? Like, is it a one-to-one ratio or is uh, it pricier? That's a good question. So it really, you know, it's funny that you said London because um, they're, they definitely have the higher housing cost, um, of course, than other countries but, uh, or cities. But so the really there's two driving factors, the cost of the housing and the cost of travel for the program that you're looking at. So I found in general the cost of housing, it's usually similar or less than a typical semester at a private college in a major U.S. city um, that, you know, has pretty high housing cost. Uh, A lot of times the housing is a little bit less. Um, But, you know, as I said, typically expensive are England and also Australia. Some cheaper housing can be found in, like, Asia or Central America, and some countries in Europe have have cheaper housing. Um, But then even if you have less expensive housing, once you go and add the extra travel expenses, it's likely to be at least similar to a typical semester on campus. Um, but if, you know, if cost is really a concern, work with the study abroad office and find out if the, they have a st- program that would work best with your family's budget. You know, mm-hmm. Keep an open mind. Mm-hmm. So we only have two minutes left, but I was wondering okay. if quickly you'd be able to tell me you know, a few other costs that a family might need to plan for. Sure, sure. So personal costs, and travel costs can certainly vary, especially if a student is, you know, wanting to take full advantage of their time abroad, travel on weekends um, and everything. Um, as far as living expenses for that, that country, they could do some research ahead of time. Um, there's a website called Numbeo, it's N-U-M-B-E-O dot com, which is a huge database that can allow them to compare the cost of living in different cities. And then also, um, try chatting with a student who's already traveled to or someone who's from the country you're going to and get some realistic advice so you can really plan ahead. Okay, good. Well, and I would think, um, yeah, and they should probably figure out how much um, they might be traveling to other locations within the same country and all of those things right. can definitely exactly. matter. Okay. Sure. All right, great. Well, listen, Michelle, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Yeah, and thank you to the rest of my guests today as well. Um, Now I'd like to tell you about our guest for next week. Um, As I mentioned, I'll be the host again, and I'll be talking with my guests about Greek life on college campuses, starting your college career at a community college, and using a 529 plan to pay for college. Finally, I want to remind you that you don't have to listen to our shows live. Every show is accessible 24-7 on the Voice America website, and you can also download every show for free on iTunes. If you check out the archives, you'll find shows on taking a gap year, paying for college expenses out of pocket, and more. And if you like our show, if you like our show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes. It only takes a moment of your time, and it's absolutely free to do. Last, do not forget, we are here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. Check us out, and thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. 
hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.